0: Today, on an all-new episode of the Graham Journey Podcast.
1: Oh, I'm a lucky man to count on both hands the ones I love. Some folks just have one, yeah, others they got none. Oh, oh. Stay with me.
0: Stewie. Yeah? It's not your fault. What? It's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. I know. No, Stewie, Stewie. It's not your fault. Don't do this to me, man. Not you, man. It's not your fault. Screw you, cut it out, man. It's not your fault. <laughs> why is it so hard? Hey, Ma I wasn't sure about your branch of the family
1: after I heard about your parents' divorce. But you and Jim are just perfect. (laughs) God bless you.
2: Oh, thank you. But nobody's perfect.
1: Well, I wouldn't care to live if I thought that. All due respect, you got no f***ing idea what it's like to be number one. Every decision you make affects every facet of every other thing. It's too much to deal with almost. And in the end, you're completely alone with it all. I,
0: I, I am number one No matter if you like it, you take it, sit down and write it
2: I am number one Now let me ask you, mate. What does it take to be number
0: one Baby, I'm gonna butter your bread <laughs> The only time I've ever heard butter your bread is on Super Troopers that was until this episode of the Enneagram Journey podcast with the Enneagram godmother, Suzanne Steville and today's guest, Enneagram, Kendra Adachi, a.k.a. The Lazy Genius. Does the Dependence Dance struggle most with childhood wounds? And what does it mean when you step on a Lego and rage a little bit? We're going to find out today. First, plug the time. Enneagram Boot Camp, naming and navigating the first weekend in August the third through the fifth, Suzanne is going to be teaching Enneagram triad work, Enneagram stance work, wisdom and understanding. You know those turnabouts that are replacing intersections uh, in a lot of our communities? I think maybe they're originally like in Europe? I don't know, but I'm seeing them popping up everywhere now. And have you ever entered one and you weren't quite sure how to get out or when you get out if you're going in the right direction and other cars? When you look around, they're behaving the same way, and they look about as confused as you feel. That's the metaphor for the work of this weekend. She's going to show us the tools we already have on board to help us navigate our way and give us some new tools to assist. Very exciting pre-conference yoga and anagram workshop with Courtney Perry of Yanigram. Courtney merges anagram wisdom with the practice of modern yoga to promote long-term personal growth and facilitate healing of mind, body, and heart. I know it's a very Antigram seventh thing to say, but this is going to be the greatest Antigram boot camp ever. You're going to want to join us in Dallas for these three days, but if you just can't swing it, I completely understand, we completely understand, and we hope that you will join us virtually. You're going to find all the important information at lifeinthetrinityministry.com, or you can click on the link in the show notes, and you'll also find some sweet new Antigram t-shirts. Life in the Trinity Ministry.com, August third through fifth, Thursday, Friday, Saturday in Dallas. Sign up, and we'll see you this summer. And now, it's time for the lazy genius and the anagram godmother.
2: <laughs> what a fun! What a fun treat this is. So-
1: you know, I, I really thought I had written uh, uh, books that the world needs the most, but not without yours. Aww. Suzanne. What? Well, it's just the absolute truth. Thank you. That's like, we can be done now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> she said we can be done now. Thanks. I'll just
2: take that and I'll just like, I'll receive that for the next three days. <laughs> like food. Oh, that's so kind. Legitimately. Thank you. That's really sweet.
1: I believe that there's a distinction between self-help books and books that help. And I think the anagram helps. So I put my books in that category. And your book, The Lazy Genius Way, helps. It's astonishing that as a one, you've written a book that has such honesty and integrity, number one. And number two, that has so much, um, Do th- do this if you want to. And if you don't want to, that's
2: okay. And Remember- start people who are shocked that I'm a one after they read my book. They're like, you're wait, what? What member are you? I'm exactly. Like, yeah, I, know. I know. I'm so sorry.
1: Except there's oneness all over it. it. All over it because it's about getting stuff done. And here's how you can do it from emotions to laundry. Right. This is how you can get stuff done right here. You refer to yourself in our info that we got from you as a relaxed one. I am going to refer to you as a healthy one because there's oneness all over your book. First of all, there are 13 principles. Like really, that's a one thing to do.
2: And <laughs> you have a number of, you have to have a <laughs> list of there or something. Come on.
0: Great number of principles. So I've got a lucky 13 tattoo. We were both born on the 13th. Nice. Uh, I've got two kids that were born on the 13th. Like it's, it's big. We like, 13. I,
2: I chose it. I chose it for y'all's family.
1: You didn't know. Thank it you. At the Thank time, you. But they're I'm grateful. For it. <laughs> it is not wasted. Yeah. So here's a big one. I can't remember what principle it is, but one of the big things you said that I thought was really big was go pick up a thing and put it where it belongs. And then you feel like confetti falls because you did it like Joe and I are both have big one wings. We're highly organized. So the book was kind of at a girl for me. Sure. Yeah. But to go get one thing, not one room, one thing, and then do it again tomorrow.
2: Right. Right.
1: So I would love for you to talk about how you got to this book how you got to these 13. We can talk about several of them. Like I scheduling rest is the one that I needed the most right now. Mm. And uh, it's very helpful to me because I don't do that. And the thing that I loved, and then I'm, I'm going to stop talking and let you talk about your book instead of me talking about your book. But one of the things I loved too is um, a whole way of being in the book where you can start anywhere you want to. You can look through it and see what you need. You can start there, but then it is even more generous and that everything builds on, which one is it?
2: Well, everything builds on the idea of naming what matters. Yes, it does. And, and decide once. Oh, oh, I love decide once. Oh, I love
1: decide once too. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. But, but you, I want you to talk about all of it. Like I'm going to interrupt you cause I can't help it, but you just start wherever you want to. Why yeah. this book? How'd you get there? Yeah. All the stuff, all the stuff.
2: Well, I, I have lived a whole life of trying real hard, obviously as a one. And was real good at it for a long time in the sense that, you know, if you're unhealthy ones, uh, look real good on the outside. And so I, I did, I did, I was voted most dependable in high school. Um, if that tells you anything (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, not like best all around or coolest or best smile. It was like, she's so dependable. (laughs) I have really been, I spent most of my life trying to live one way where I tried to do everything perfectly all the time. Okay. Then after I started having kids and I had two and two years, and um, once my second son was born and my oldest was an incredibly hard baby and toddler, very challenging. And I just was out. And so I was like, let's live a different way where we don't care about anything. And that also did not work because I did care about things. I cared deeply about certain things. And as I kind of lived through like swinging uh, back and forth between both of those things, I eventually, that kind of was the impetus for the lazy genius, which we do a really good job of swinging from the genius side to the lazy side, where you care about everything or you care about nothing. You care about everything, you care about nothing. And that is exhausting. That's an exhausting way to live. And I kept looking for words and language around, well, okay, if you aren't going to live one of those ways, how do you live? <laughs> what do you do? And I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything comprehensive that really made sense to me. I would I would gather bits and pieces from different voices, but I just felt like I was kind of duct taping together all these different things to try to make something work for me. And And as I, I was doing internet work for several years before I started doing this and um, about completely different things about food things. And, but I still was noticing just these themes um, on the internet, but also in my regular life of everyone was so tired. And I, I started to notice, I wonder if the tiredness is from this swinging from this back and forth that everyone's doing in their own way. And, uh, so that's when I started the lazy genius space. And, um, but the, the funny thing about the, the principles in the book, I didn't set out to write a book. Like I'm not somebody that's dreamed about writing a book my whole life, which I had to, I had to come to that's a, that's a different conversation maybe of like coming to this, doing this thing, getting to do this thing that a lot of people dream of doing and they don't get to do. And I didn't really want to, you know, that was Me a too. to reconcile. I'm the same. So we should have a conversation about that sometime. Let's do it. Let's do okay. it. Okay. And so I, when I was working on this book, the reason I wanted to write a book is because I just kept getting questions of like, well, how do I begin? Like my, I had a podcast at the time and all of my episodes are very topical. They're very specific and they're not linear, which is, you know, as, as a, as a whole, you know, as a, as a, as a catalog, as many podcasts are They're they're just what they are. Each episode is what it is. And, and so I thought, well, maybe it is. Maybe it would be a good idea to write a book where kind of all of this is one pl- in one place and there's a path. And I wrote uh, 55,000 words of a book that after I had gotten the contract, I'd signed the contract. I thought I knew what it was going to be. I wrote 55,000 words before I was like, this is not the book. This is not oh, it. Oh, gosh. Which was that it, y'all, that is a book. That is an actual book. And it was still so have it devastating. I, you know what? I don't know. I should look. I wonder if I do. You should look, cause that I could be look. the second book. Oh no. The first book was trash. It was more like <laughs> the reason it wasn't right is because I kept trying to uh, create order and systems for people and kept running into, well, this might not matter to them though. They might have a life that looks like this. Like I just kept, it was too granular. It was too on the ground. And so then I kind of stepped back and I was like, are there... I remember standing in my kitchen kind of with my hands on my head, like they are right now. And I was like, are there like underlying principles that I live by? And I do this work by that. I just haven't named yet. I wonder if there are. And so I started to write these things down and it only took me like a couple of hours before I had a bunch written down. And, I, and then I kind of was like, Oh no, but these are sort of the same thing. And where I had these 13 principles and then I felt really good about them. And I said, well, let's give it a shot. And I ran every piece of content I've ever made through those principles and said, do I talk about at least one of these in some way for everything I've ever done? And the answer was yes. And I was like, well, all right, I think this is it. And then I wrote the book from there. So um, the, the the biggest thing, thank you for what you said about the difference in self-help and books that help. And that my book is a book that helps is I wanted to write a, a self-help book for people who are tired of reading self-help books that don't work mm-hmm. because the, the, the challenge, the, the challenge as a reader is that we are reading someone else's system that works for them. Mm-hmm. And when something works for you, I mean, again, I if something works for me, I'm an evangelist for that thing big time. I'm like, hey, what's up y'all? Listen, this thing is so great. You want to give it a try? Like that's a normal human response that we have. So it makes sense that if a person has this thing that is successful for them and they have a platform from which to share that thing and someone wants to pay them to write a book about it, they're going to write a book about it. But yeah. then you read it, and especially women, we're like, we read it. And if it doesn't work for us, we think we're the problem and we need to find a different system. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to create a, a process and a framework that allowed people to be the truest version of who they are and feel free in that. And also tools to like get their stuff done in the way that works for them and the season that they're in. So that's where the book came from. So here's a confession.
1: When I first picked it up, I thought, oh, I bet one of these fits each Enneagram number just perfectly. <laughs> did it? Absolutely not. <laughs> Which is such a compliment to you. Thank you. Because I that, I'll take that. Well, it fits exactly with what you just said. You know, it, if it was one of the nine, then it, it would help one of the nine. Right, right. And the 13 principles that, as I've read and understand them, are uh, applicable all through your life at right. different stages, perhaps. Yes. But all through your life. And I think that's what makes it a book that helps. And it makes it a book for conversation with other people who can then help each other live into the framework that you give for the principles, not the rules not here's how you do it. And here's how you do it in order. You just set up, you know, my language is set the table Hmm. and that's what you did for each one of them. And then it's like, you know, if if you want a little of this and a little of that, and then I'll pass you the salt and pepper and you got it. Right.
2: Right. That's exactly right. That's, that's so affirming that you would see it that way. And, and I have experienced the richness of what you just assumed would happen is just kind of a, like an open table for conversation. And I see that in the lazy genius community. Like people are, it's a language we share and it's a really special thing to be able to be like, all right, how can we lazy genius this? Like we've turned it into a verb and we everybody knows where to begin. All right, well, what season are you in? What matters about this right now? I feel like you're going too big, start small with this. Um, It's just a, it's such a, depending on uh my like emotional state at the time that I talk about it it often moves me to tears because it is such a an honor like it is like truly such an honor and feels really redemptive to my own story of um that has a lot of darkness in it um it feels it's such a gift that that redemption can be like pa- i don't like the word packaged but can be presented to other people in a way that is truly making a difference in their lives. And, and I don't take that lightly, like for a second. I mean, it's just such a gift. Um, It's a little scary sometimes to be, to be a person that people think of when they're like, how would a lazy genius handle this? What would Kendra say about this? Like that, that that's a big responsibility there, but it's also something that I just, I hold with like, such tenderness. It's just a really special thing.
1: Are you okay if we talk a little bit about how your childhood and mine uh, may have fed the work that we do? Sure. So one of the lines that you shared was that with your therapist, everything comes back to your childhood experience and parents and my therapist and I, he, he, Keep saying to me, you know, it doesn't matter what you bring to me. It always ends up with (laughs) being about the fact that you're adopted. Yeah, yeah. And I think we could both um, label those as being wounded. And I think every human being is Mm -hmm. to one degree or another. And one of the reasons that I'm kind of shocked by your oneness there is a lot of non-duality in your work hmm. because I wouldn't expect a one to write this book. And yet I would expect a one to write this book. <laughs> so then I thought my notes say that exact thing. So then I thought, okay, now wait, that's not helpful. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I find it delightful. I'm so glad you said that. It is that. delightful, I it so but I,
1: I think it's definitely delightful. I'm not sure it's helpful. But, but then what I got to is um, a, a wounded one who understands that they are not in control and that control is an illusion would, in fact, write this book and would write it this way. So essentially your book is, if you would like to organize your whole life and do
2: better, here you go. (laughs) And And also if you want permission to not have to organize your life and do better, because better is a a definition we've been fed by a lot of people who don't have the same worldview we do, then you can also read this book. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that,
1: so somehow, and I want you to try to speak to this if you can. Somehow, as a one, you got away from the idea that there's one right way to do things, right? Okay, tell us how.
0: Well, <laughs> oh <my laughs> I wrote 55,000 words, <laughs>
2: right?
1: right? That's great, right? That's it, right there, and threw them away. I think I actually don't know where they are. That's the fascinating. I think you just need to at least know where they are. That'll I'll help go me. For him.
2: I'll go, I already made a note, I'll go hunt for them after, see if I can track them down. So how did I get to a place where there is not one right way to do things? Right. So Correct. I, don't that, I don't know that I'm at that place. Well,
1: the book doesn't
2: suggest
0: ever. Is, is that something that you deal with? Daily? Like, is that something that you recognize in your thought process and yes. your way of in the world?
2: Yes. My dear, dear inner critic, she will not, she won't ever let me be comfortable with there's no right way to do something. And so, uh, yeah, every day is a, I don't want to say constant. It's not constant, but every day there are occasions where I have to step back from the default of gripping onto, well, this is the right way to do this. I think the reason that I've, I prefer believing and living from the truth that there's not one right way to do everything Mm -hmm. is because it feels better in my body. It's easier to, I'm kinder. Mm -hmm. Like I feel more myself when I let that go. It, it makes me more available to other people. It makes me have better. I'm like, I have more empathy. Like I just, it's, so it's easier It's become over time, over years and years and years of practice and therapy and unpacking all of the things that have spoken into this lie that I have to be perfect in order for everything to be okay. You know, there's years of years of therapy and amazing formative relationships and all these different things. So it's easier for me to say, no, it's okay for him to load the dishwasher this way. That's the one example that ones are always given is like, they're going to change how you load the dishwasher. I don't care or I don't care enough. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't matter the most. That's why so much of my work comes down to what matters right now. Right. And the thing that matters to me above anything else in any scenario you give me is connection. Mm-hmm. Is a connection with God, with myself, with the person I'm talking to, with a stranger, with my kid, like everything comes down to connection for me. I am also a uh, sexual subtype. Mm-hmm. And so that is also deeply that is very meaningful to me too like one on one interactions are like prime <laughs> and so all that to say it's it's it feels easier because i know the safety on the other side of that choice mm-hmm. and i like being there i prefer being there versus being holding on to being right all the time mm-hmm.
1: so if i wanted to talk about the book you know with my friends over lunch would it be honoring of you if I said she's a one and the 13 principles are correct? They're right. And her oneness is very gently reflected in the way you live toward the principles.
2: Yeah, I would, I would love the fact that you just said it now as a hypothetical, I'm like super into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, and I think that, that I get, I tend to get a little frustrated, not, not in your space, but in kind of like broader Enneagram spaces, I tend to get pretty frustrated at the characterization of ones. I think every mm-hmm. number is poorly represented. Um, it, it can't, you cannot memeify any number. It's just, it feels dismissive and unkind. And, um, and I think that i it makes sense that I would be more sensitive to how a one is portrayed because that is what I identify as. So that's clear to me. Um, But I think that there is a, there's sort of a, um, a baby out with the bathwater kind of idea of you have to let go of caring. Like if you're, there's this idea that I sort of see sometimes in like the, the loose, less educated Enneagram sidegeist that if you are a one, a way that you can like, maybe not be that way so much, or is just like, let it go. Like, don't care as much. Mm -hmm. And, and I, my whole thing is, well, there are things that I'm not going to care about, but there are also things I really will. Mm -hmm. And I want to put, I strive for excellence in a lot of things. Uh, I don't tie perfection or even excellence to my identity. Mm -hmm. Like I used to, you know, but, but I also think there is a, there's nothing wrong with something being, there are things that are right. And there's nothing, there's nothing to, that's not a scary thing to me. You know, you said it would be honoring for me to say she's a one and she wrote these 13 principles and they're right. That is really meaningful to me because I care about making those something that work for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I also believe that for a certain type of person who sees the world in a certain way, those are right and what a gift what a what a what a privilege for me mm-hmm. to be able to be part of bringing that to people um so i i think that i don't want to throw out rightness i don't want to throw out excellence i don't want to throw out um you know i i am learning to believe and and i've observed in different places that i'm in that my desire to bring wisdom and excellence and thoughtfulness and intention to elevate situations. I see potential everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, and I love that about myself. Sure. Like I really do. And and it makes me sad when, um, when other people who identify as ones or when people talk about ones and they kind of like dismiss it as, well, it's it's like relegated to the dishwasher and helping you move,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you
2: know? Uh, it just feels like so much deeper than that to me.
1: I'm teaching a new cohort this year for the first time with a family systems scholar and we're doing Enneagram and family systems. We're teaching Enneagram and family systems. This is a question that you didn't have ahead of time and you can certainly say, you know, I don't think I'm ready to answer that. But one of my new questions is going to be, and I might as well start with you. <laughs>
0: no, no time like the present. I'm here for it.
1: Is, is there, if you look at the story of your life, so you're 41. Correct. Is there a place where there was a, an arc for you where you kind of found yourself in your number hmm. that brought the past? and includes hopes of the future into the present. And let me tell you the reason I'm asking that question. I I love, 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 talk about it all the time, the book Consolations by David White. Mm-hmm. And I read one a day. And I was tired of them. You know, it's like listening to Richard Rohr's, reading Richard Rohr's Daily Meditation, Sometimes I just have to take a break. They're so hard and so heady. I just have to have a few days off. Well, I do that with David White too. One day I was coming, going into a break because I was just done with having heavy things. And I flipped through the book and I saw maturity and I'd never read that. So I thought that's the one I'm going to go for. I'm, surely I'm that. Uh, surely I already have that. And I can go check and go on with my day. And then, and I don't know if you know this or have heard me talk about it, but orientation to time in Enneagram work is really important. Yeah. And ones, twos, and sixes are oriented to the present. And fours, fives, and nine, the past. And three, sevens, and eights, the future. So I'm reading David White, and he says, you know, maturity is being able to hold the past and the present and the future all at one time. I think that's what maturity is. Hmm. Now that I've lived with it for a while, I think that's it. That is it. Because my read of you is that you are mature. And I think that people who have childhood issues like we do struggle a little more to get there, potentially. So having set the table in that way, um, can you talk about that? I love because that definition. I, th- I think ones think they have to be mature at age seven.
2: Oh, for sure. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, for sure. By I, that definition. Yeah. By that definition. So th- this is a good example. My answering this question is a good example of how I do value uh, rightness is I have an answer. And I don't know, though, if it's the most accurate answer or the rightest answer of that timeline, but I'm going to share it anyway because it's the answer that came to mind. So I think probably the visual that started my comfort in holding the past, present, and future at the same time was um, a visualization exercise I did in therapy probably in the last seven, maybe seven or eight years ago, maybe. And it's probably a pretty common one, but it was, um, imagining all of the different kind of versions of myself and what they bring to the table, you know, what they're saying to me and, um, and kind of like where those versions of Kendra kind of exist in, in different places of trauma and, And, and just kind of like listening to them rather than avoiding them or repressing them or whatever it is. And having the language I I learned as I was kind of going through this exercise, um, that my nine-year-old nine-year-old Kendra is the least mature (laughs) we'll say, and, and also the one who thought she was the most mature and thought she needed to be the most mature. And, uh, I was actually talking to my mom, my mom and I have a wonderful relationship now. We've never had a bad relationship. She just struggled with mental illness and was a victim of abuse for her whole life. And so it's, it, that's a lot on a person. And, um, and so we were talking yesterday because I had actually mentioned my nine-year-old self on an episode of my own podcast that she had just listened to. And, and she said, you know, if you don't, if you don't mind, sometime I'd love to kind of know what that means. I've never heard you say that before. And I would love to know what was happening for your nine-year-old self. And, and I was like, Oh, I can tell you right now. Um, you know, that was when my mom was, um, it was right before my little sister was born or right as my little sister was born. And my mom was, um, very, very unwell, didn't live with us for, she had a mental breakdown, didn't live with us for a while. And I don't remember my dad being around. And I, I just told my mom, I was like, I know that there were adults around, but I don't remember any of them. Mm-hmm. I would just remember being very alone and having this baby sister to take care of and this house to take care of and just having to kind of grow up really quickly. And so she is that nine-year-old is, was so afraid, so deeply afraid because nothing felt settled. Nothing was sure. Her present wasn't sure her past didn't make sense and she didn't know what was in the future. So it was just, everything was unmoored. And, and so I think that, um, the, the visualization practice, and it's kind of hard. I'm obviously struggling. I feel like I'm struggling to put it into words, but kind of, I imagine all of these versions of me sort of sitting around a living room and and welcoming them all equally, Mm -hmm. you know, that they all had a beautiful part to play. And, um, and the beginning, it was the beginning of an invitation for present me Mm
0: -hmm.
2: to begin mothering nine-year-old me Mm -hmm. in a way that she never was able to receive. And the same for 16 and 23, and there were all these different things. And, and so I, I wonder if that's part of the you know, you mentioned like the non-duality, or that there is there is a lot of duality in um, what I I can hold two things, multiple things at the same time. I really think that that is a a pivotal moment of beginning to experience. You can be with yourself, be with this scared version, this responsible like hard nosed, the depend, the most dependable, mm-hmm. um, the one who just gave up the one who thinks no one loves her. The one who thinks everyone's going to leave, you know, you can actually be with all of these people because they are all you, but none of them get to sit at the head of the table, you know, like who you are now is the, is the one. And then also, you know, for, for those who, uh, love Jesus too. It's that, and, and Jesus is the one who tends to all of them and me, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. not responsible for even the tending, um, myself. And so I I do think that was at least a starting point for that practice. And I think when, you know, when you, when you, when you work the muscles of holding seemingly disparate things Mm -hmm. for a really deep thing, like your identity <laughs> um, it kind of makes it a little bit easier to hold it for like cleaning the kitchen. Yes, it does. You know. So that's I think where it all started coming from.
1: I've never thought about it before, but the whole time you were talking, Kendra, I thought, oh, nine-year-old me made the same kind of decisions. Mm-hmm. And in therapy, it goes back to about that age for me. So I'm going to start asking this question now in cohorts, and I'll get back to you in a couple of years about whether or not the theory's right, but I certainly think there's a possibility that it is, Yeah, and it'd be nice if we could nurture that time for children. I am convinced, and I've always known this, but I'm convinced that everybody has a story And I'm convinced that how they deal with their stories has to do with their Enneagram number. Hmm. And I would like permission to ask you about something, and we can edit this out. So I'm going to ask a question, and you can say, yeah, no, I don't want to talk about that. Got it. How much did you struggle as a nine-year-old in whatever the ages were that you just shared with how other people don't do things correctly or get things right? Oh, gosh. How much of your headspace is into other people just really messing
2: up? I would say up until I'm not trying to butter your toast, but like up until I really started to dig into your, your teaching 97% maybe. Um, because, and, and I, and I, and I think so much of it was deflection and projection mm-hmm. of my own insecurity of not being perfect. Right. I mean, that's the whole thing is we're so hard on ourselves. we're so much harder. (laughs) I'm so much harder on myself than I am on anyone else. Um, which is saying something through my high school college twenties, I was really hard on other people. So that indicates how hard I, (laughs) how hard I was on myself. Um, I think that I wore my story at the time as a badge of honor Mm -hmm. that I made, made it through Mm -hmm. and that I am relatively unscathed. Look at me, look at how well I did that. Mm -hmm. And also not allowing other people to have legitimate reasons to struggle. It was like, I have all the excuses in the world to struggle and I'm not struggling. What are you even talking about? Like it was so cruel. Um, now I don't know that I, you know, I didn't say those things out loud because then people would not like me, and that was non-negotiable, right? But in my head, oh, just awful. And um, and I, I have, I've definitely worked through a lot of that. Um, have had to mend some relationships that were mended, but weren't necessarily restored. You know, because of that, and um, like friendships and stuff, and and so there has been a tremendous harshness in me for a long time. And I think some of it is bitter that like, why is this my story? Why did this have to happen to me? Why couldn't I have had something that was easier or simpler or kinder? Or, um, you know, I don't have a dad. Like that sucks. <laughs> like I don't have a dad and my mom is 64 and I don't know that I'm going to get a dad. Um, And so there's, there's a lot of, it's not that that harshness and bitterness has disappeared. Um, There are definitely kernels of it, but it's surrounded in, I want to say the word relief and that's not right. That's not the word that I want. Um, There's just an ease. I think I've just developed And found comfort in ease around things that are uncomfortable that I don't run from the fact that I'm still really sad that I don't have a dad or, um, that I don't beat myself up when I do find myself being judgmental of someone else. Is it acceptance? Maybe. Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is acceptance that there's just a, there's a self-compassion there. Mm -hmm. Like if I, because if I. Um, if I in my head think something unkind about someone else because of they did something differently than I would have done it, um, if I hold that lack of compassion towards them, it it's like my my inner critic and my years and years and years the muscle memory of turning mm-hmm. on compassion towards myself that just flips mm-hmm. on like a, like so fast. Yes. And so my ability, not my ability, my awareness of that, that connection of compassion for others feeds into compassion for myself and compassion for myself feeds into compassion for others. Um, That is a much better place. That's a place I want to live. That's a cycle I want to live in. And, And I know that when I become judgmental of others, it knocks me off that cycle. Right. And that is, I don't want, I don't want to be off that cycle. I love being in that cycle. Now, does it make me sad? And, uh, is it, does it open up wounds sometimes? Is it vulnerable? Absolutely. Of course. But I would, I would rather be that. Sure. Than
1: the other thing. Well, I have a new theory. I've never said it out loud until right now, but I talk about us being thinking repressed in our stance. ones, twos, and sixes. Yes. And I have historically said that, um, you believe conversations ones believe that conversations with their critic is thinking, and that that's actually just having a conversation with a voice that nobody else hears.
2: That changed my life by the way, but <laughs> good. I'm not kidding. Your side note timeout. You're remember what you're about to say that you've never said to anyone else, um, Your words about one's being thinking repressed and that it's unproductive thinking and it's a conversation like that. It was like, oh, it just made everything make make sense. Like it's just truly a life-changing little nugget. Like amazing. So thank you for doing that. Okay, continue with your words. You're welcome. You can butter my toast
1: anytime (laughs) you want to. My new thing I want to say is that because ones have a judging, comparing mind, and because we're in the dependent stance, you and I together, but I'm talking about you right now. So we're always dependent on responses or the actions of people around us. My new theory is that that conversation between ones and the critic is literally that, and that it's a judging, comparing conversation with the one and the critic about other people. Mm. I've always said out loud, I've always said out loud that ones try to find fault in other people so that levels the playing field so they have a place to stand. I'm putting forth a new theory that where that gets lived out is the one and their critic together judge other people and their behavior and their actions. And that's why it's hard for me to get ones to believe that the critic is not their friend.
2: Can I, uh, yes. And that? Absolutely. I wonder if the reason why it's so hard, it takes a lot of work and tools and time and patience and forgiveness and all those things to become dislodged from that conversational pattern with the inner critic is because if I resist, it's like talking to any gossip. If I resist talking to the inner critic about other people, well, the inner critic's gonna talk about me. And it's much easier to have that conversation about other people with that inner critic. If I can keep doing that, there's not space for it to aim at me, really. Where I take it and I'm like, no, you're wrong, actually. Like, um, so I think that's true. And I wonder if that's part of the reason why it's hard to stop. I'll let you
1: know because I'm gonna start asking people.
0: Well, I feel like you and the reverend already Teach to that when y'all talk about spiritual practices, if correct me, if I've seen this it, wrong, it seems what y'all teach and your experience with ones and spiritual disciplines is that ones have a hard time being in the silence, in the solitude, because there's not the, okay, let's focus. It's not, a, there's no, nothing to focus outward on. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so then it's just you, it's just the one and the critic to for the critic to lead the conversation talking about the one.
2: And she is not a good time. Like she's not. She's not a good time at all. It's so hard.
0: Do you think that in in both the healthiest way struggle and unhealthy struggle and everything in between ones twos and sixes struggle more with child wounds?
1: I don't know that we struggle more but we process verbally. So we for sure talk more about the struggle.
2: The number of times I have had to preface any sort of conversation, like I have to tell people up front, hi, my name is Kendra. I'm a verbal processor. Like <laughs> I have to tell people right away because I'm like, you're not ready. I don't even know what I think sometimes until it comes out of my mouth. And then it does. And I'm like, no, that's not right. Hold on. Let me try again. <laughs> I
1: don't, don't want to say that.
0: Well, maybe struggle is not the word that I'm looking for, but um, that it is a... I'm not going to get any of these words right. It is a bigger issue for ones, twos, and sixes.
1: Absolutely. That, I, that, think that's I think absolutely. That's, what
0: I, that's what I was trying to say. Was, is that it's um it plays a bigger role in who they are as adults. And their identity as adults. And then when I was thinking about that question while you we were talking, and I was trying to listen also, and I've got my own bag of cats over here, but <laughs> You know, I got, I got to think about um, the scene in Good Will Hunting where Robin Williams says to Matt Damon, he's like, Hey, it's, it's not your fault. And Matt Damon's like, I know it's not my fault.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it, Robin Williams had to get past the, the. And that's what I'm saying. I don't think that. And this is not, if you send in, if you're a listener and you send in an email with your opinion about Matt Damon's character in Goodwill Hunting. And what anagram number he is, it will be immediately deleted and not read. <laughs> so that is not where I'm going with this conversation. Right,
1: doesn't have anything to do with it.
0: <laughs> I don't think though that he's a one, two, or a six. No. And he knows it's not, it wasn't about him. Right. It seems to me that one two, and sixes struggle with the it's role that me. the role that they played yeah. in being a victim. in, you don't in have being to
2: convince, you don't have to convince us that it's our fault. Right. All. Like it's it's like on it's 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 of course fiber, it is it's right there. Of course it's our fault. Of course it is. Everything's uh, our
0: fault. And I think for the other six numbers, it may be easier. And everyone's story is unique. And this sure. is not to make light of what people have gone through.
1: Bless your heart. The email
2: you get. <laughs> he's really sounds so hard to like <laughs> not dismiss anyone's experiences. Right. Please don't email me, is what he's saying. <laughs> it it does feel I will say I do think that. I think that stories and and histories that have complex trauma in them, it's a live wire. It's not, you know, I don't know enough electricity metaphors to continue that with the other options, but it is a live wire. Like it is just, it's always present and it's always, um, one step away from even being dangerous like it's just always right there that idea of for me at least i'll just speak for myself that idea of well it's my fault of course it's my fault how do i fix it how do i make this better um so the reason that's my thing is like how do i fix this sure and the reason we sorry
1: i interrupted but (laughs) the reason that we think that it's our fault is because in the dependent stance we are dependent on how other people respond to us. And so whatever they're doing has to do s- somehow with something we did.
0: If their response isn't good, then you're the one that has That's caused it. hundred
1: percent of the time. hundred percent. Yeah.
2: And it's what an awful very, way to live. Oh, it's all- exhausting. I was, it is say, exhausting, it's a really exhausting way to live. Yeah. And, and we handle that- it. Go ahead. You go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. I was just, okay. Okay. Yes, ma'am. I was going to say, I think that is actually a part of my own sort of personal growth and work that is still in its young stages is believing that relationship disruptions of any kind are not my fault. Yeah. Especially my friendships. I will say, I I want to follow this out because my family, well, they have to stay with me. Mm Mm-hmm. They have to, I mean, they don't have to, but they kind of have to, my friends, they could leave any minute. I have said for a long time, I have, I don't feel this as strongly as I used to, but it's again, still baby stages. I'm one mistake away from you leaving Mm -hmm. one mistake away. And that is also a really terrible way to live.
1: That's the path I walk right there. Except for me, it's also family. Mm. And so it's, it's, you could leave at any time. And if you do, I know that it's going to be because of me. Totally. For me, it's because it causes shame. It. I'm guessing for you causes anger and for sixes causes fear because right. that's the default emotion. But then we also deal with that, that feeling that that's happening in different ways. And I deal with it as a two by being cloying, which is just more disgusting (laughs) for other people, but it feels to me like if I can just grab you and hold you a minute, you're going to want to stay. And one's do it by trying to make things right and do things right and get things right. And six is doing it by, okay, this is falling apart. So what am I going to do next? And then they make a plan for that. And I don't think other, the other six numbers, Joel, I think you're absolutely right. And I Here's what I don't think they live with. I don't think they live with that kind of anxiety around rejection.
0: What you just described, Kendra, and then the conversation, that's what you describe stance work is. That's right. Like when you say that stand, stance work is your life's work, anagram wise, I'd be curious if in, when we do you know, hopefully like the 10th podcast with Kendra. Yeah. <laughs> conversation. There's 13
1: that,
0: principles. Sorry, Let's do I'll 13. Come any, listen, 13 5 probably, years. It's
2: the easiest yes of my whole life. I'll come anytime you want me to.
0: I feel the same way about stance work. And I think we probably will in five years of I'm still a baby in this work. And I still 20 years from now, it's still going to be that same mentality of, and the work is different. Mine is not at all what you described and the stuff that my stance work that I'm working on and I've, been working on it i'll say um given it a good college try for a few years now five years now maybe the feelings that i have about it are still and my success are the same as they were a year ago two years ago three years ago four years ago
1: do they feel like nine-year-old feelings
2: mm.
0: i was talking with uh sevens recently i don't know if it was at the event or workshop here or something it was here it was here the path between this group that we're going through right now and the sevens there's three of us and we talked about how we all in uh, the other two are older women like much older than me and how we all feel like we're, our image of ourselves is that we're still children that mentality so when you say oh does it feel like you're nine everything feels like i'm nine like i i don't know i feel like a big kid i feel like everyone's more mature than me when people say their age we're close in age but i'm like but I feel like you and Suzanne are closer in age, as far not, and it, just the.
1: How you gonna talk around this, now, <laughs> Kendrick, say, y'all? If you could see
2: Joel's face when he said that, he's like, oh no, oh no, what <laughs> let because... me pull my
0: leg out of the bear trap. Let us try. I want to say this.
2: I want to say this. There, there is beauty. There, like I am not like a. I'm not afraid of age. I'm not afraid of aging, and I would be honored for somebody to think I'm older than I am.
0: Well, that's Without question, I, yeah. what I mean is my,
2: and people I, probably do
0: how I take it in. I take in how I behave in the world. I'm like, you are still a child. You are a man child. And listening to you, listening to other friends in this age group and demographic, uh, I'm like, y'all are, y'all are so much older and wiser and more have it all on board, all the stuff. And then I see other people and it's not everyone. It's like, like I said, I'm not dependent. It's not all about me. I like I see people. I'm like, you're a huge child. You're a huge acting <laughs> child.
1: You're a much so, bigger child than yeah. I am.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so mine is not dependent, but that is how I, and talking to other sevens, that is how we see ourselves is yeah. still nine.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. You sevens, because there's a lot of feeling wrapped in that. Well, here's what I, I think I might know. How'd you like that?
0: That's the name of the next podcast. I think we, I've, heard the, I've heard this before. Here's what I think I might know.
1: I think everybody is looking for grace. And I don't think everybody has grace to offer. I think they have it in them, but they don't have it available. And a one who can offer lots of grace has to have done lots of work. I'll agree. I'll agree with that. And you offer a lot of grace. Thank you. And if if we're supposed to turn our life experiences, um, yours more complex than mine, and I'm not talking about comparing, I'm just saying people know a lot about mine and they may not know a lot about yours and I'm just putting on the table that your trauma is more experience, it, it is just a deeper trauma than mine because it lasted so long. If we can turn trauma into understanding and grace, then somehow the trauma has some value at least. And if we can't do that, then it's very difficult to do that. And I think it's hard for ones to get away from the anger. I think it's hard for twos to get away from the shame. And I think it's hard for sevens to get away from the fear. So if we were going to talk about that, because we represent all all of those things right now, Mm -hmm. then how did you manage your anger? How do you manage it now? How do you manage it looking at the big picture? Mm
0: -hmm. I'm sitting on a question and I want to ask it just as a, because I think it might be the same question, just from a different angle. Mm one of the questions that I wanted to ask you coming into this was you talked about being a relaxed one. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And one of the things that I'm working on is being more, I don't think the word relaxed, but patient. What are the practices you do to achieve that?
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that, okay, Suzanne, you just said that something to the effect of, to be able to turn trauma into grace, mm-hmm. at least it, you know, I don't think you said the phrase, the drama is like good for something, no, but I it's didn't. sort of something, you know, like whatever that phrasing was and we can turn our experience into something good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, one of the beginning places, one of the core things is honestly, And maybe this is, maybe this is singular to a one's experience. Maybe not. I don't know, but I have to release myself from the expectation or the responsibility that what I have learned from my own story and my own trauma and the work I've done, I have to release myself from this responsibility that it's going to help someone else or that it should help someone else, right? That my work has to be for me. I think that's true for all of us. I just want that on the table. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's a, it it seems like it might be counterintuitive to be like, oh, it's okay. Like for me, it, was, it feels a little counterintuitive to say, yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to change people's lives because you now have tools or you have language or you have, you can give permission or you can offer grace or you have this perspective. Like you don't have to do that. You don't have to use it this way. Yeah. That
1: the two, the two corollary to that mm-hmm. is you don't have to love everybody. Right. Well, you don't have to like everybody, you know, right. I'm not talking about. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I'm not talking about the Jesus way right now. I'm just right. saying, right. you know, you you don't have to like everybody, Suzanne. Right. right.
2: Right. Or make them like you. Right. So I think that the release of that responsibility, it's the same thing when I was talking about the cycle of compassion and judgment, you know, like any any whisper, any like dip in the toe into the pool of judgment, it knocks me off that compassion cycle so fast. And I have to then like climb back on. It's a, it's a, it's a whole process to sort of get back on. And so it's like not worth to get off because of how much effort it takes to get back on the cycle. And I think the same is true for, for that, um, responsibility that my story has to mean something for someone else in order for the work to be worth it that I have to tell myself that the work is worth it for me. Mm -hmm. And that makes the process of being available and offering grace to other people easier because it's not contingent on the worthiness of it or whatever. And that ties into the question about anger. Is this a weird thing to say? I just have less to be angry about on a regular basis because of where I choose to live, because of where I choose to stay. I am so I'm like in a cloud actively like in a cloud of compassion like always wanting to be there always empathy is like the most important thing to me so it's kind of like like it feels a little bit strange to be like I'm just I don't have anything to be angry about like I do but I don't the things I used to spend my angry energy on I don't anymore like I actively work to not but, and it is emotional labor every day, but I actively do not get angry about things that I used to. And if I feel it coming, I've become much more attuned with my body as well. And I know when the spark happens of like, Oh, we're cu- it's coming. The anger's coming where I like breathe. I like the, the amount of like deep breathing I do is just mm-hmm. absurd. Um, but so necessary And, um, and I think that that phrasing, I think this is why my work, why the lazy genius work really resonates with people so much is because the foundation It's people think it's actually one of the 13 principles and it's not, it's the foundation for the choice of the principles is to name what matters. I ask myself what matters right now, constantly, Mm -hmm. constantly, because the, the answer will change depending on what's going on. Um, a lot of times it always really does come back to some sort of connection, but I ask myself that all the time. And so I think those two practices of like choosing the work of no longer being angry about the things that I used to be angry about. And then also the awareness of my present and the intentionality of what matters right now and trusting that I can move towards that. Uh, I think what happens is what happens for me personally, at least is when I do get angry, it is anger that is rooted in injustice mm-hmm. and in, this is not a loving situation.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, it, it's, it's anger that is, um, that moves us towards wholeness.
1: Oh, that's good.
2: And so that's kind of a, so i I also, that's another thing that I value. Like, I'm not trying to, I'm not scared of my anger. I used to be really scared of it. Um, I'm very in touch with it now, like very, very in touch with it. Like it's, it's a valuable part of who I am Mm -hmm. because it is now used for wholeness. Sure. Not for judgment.
1: Okay. I, um, have a corollary to that too. Ali, do you think you're like my little sister or something? Oh my gosh. I'll be anything. Oh no. You could be my child. It's a joke, isn't it? I don't know. We we did
0: this in the last podcast too. We did. Yeah.
1: Oh, I don't even remember that. that I'll be
2: your pet, your neighbor, your, I don't care what you want. I'll I'll do it. Okay. Let's be friends. But
1: that's fantastic. All right. I'm in. Um, One of the things I do, my question every day, all day long is what is mine to do? Right. Yep. And I have steps that help me get to the question that help me watch myself. Mm. So one is why am I moving toward this other person? Second one is did the other person want my help. <laughs> and then there's thrown in there in the middle is what do I expect to get in return? Yeah. Those are good questions. Okay. Well, what I want to know is to, for the people who are listening, do you have a, a pattern that gets you to what matters most right now? Mm. Or does it stand alone?
2: No, there is definitely a pattern. Um, I have to, I have to ground first. I have to calm first because generally when uh, uh, there has to be some sort of obstacle that necessitates my asking the question okay. of what matters, right? In there has examples. To be, there has to be like, uh, I step on a Lego and I ask my kids to clean up and I hurt myself and mm-hmm. I am uh, you know, I, ouch and yell and all the things, whatever that I got hurt. If I say what matters right now in that heightened state, what matters is that my kids weren't responsible and didn't do what I asked them to do. Like, that's what, you know, like, that's what my body answers. That's what the answer is. That is the incorrect answer. That's not the answer. That's not the real answer. And so if I, everything starts with me, with calming down, with breathing and grounding and like touching something and like just being in my body and going, okay, take a deep breath. Even just for a second, don't say anything, don't react, you know, and then I will also tend to ask next before I ask what matters. And I think this is very quick and it's intuitive, but I do think this is the process. I will pull from, um, one of the principles live in the season. And I will say, what season, what season am I in right now? What is this that I'm in right now? Because it could be a season of like, that I'm hormonal. Uh, It could be that my kid didn't sleep very well last night. And so their own response right now is speaking to that. It could be that, you know, when I had little kids, when I was home with little kids, like um, a really dark, like I've been in a really dark personal season for the last couple of months with some very formative things in my life. And so I have to name that because what matters changes or can change depending on what season you're in and where you are. And so for me to just start with, well, what matters? I don't know yet until I calm my body enough to know that I'm okay. And I pay attention to where I am. Only then can I really answer that question accurately, maybe not accurately, but the, 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 in the most like congruent way, Mm -hmm. the deepest, most congruent Mm -hmm. way. And, um, and then, you know, a, a lot of my work too, is, is trying to encourage, um, cause my audience is primarily women, but it's to encourage women to trust themselves mm-hmm. with what comes next. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you can calm your body and you are honest about the season you're in, and then you ask yourself what matters right now, trust yourself with whatever the, the solution is, or the next step is like. It's okay. And and that's why the principle of start small really matters because like if you try to solve this with some big sweeping thing, you're gonna be tired from maintaining that big answer and it's also not gonna work. So just start small too. So that's why the all of those principles like really hold hands and this they're like this kaleidoscope where they just sort of shift and which ones are larger and more colorful and brighter depending on the, the situation. But that's my order. Breathe. What season am I in? where am I right now? And then name what matters.
1: It's interesting that you brought that principle up because the two that I was most interested in talking about was that one about what season am I in and scheduling rest. And they go together really well.
2: They do very much.
1: And I'm aware just from journaling for the last two weeks, if I look at my journal, that, um, I'm being very apologetic about my age
2: Hmm.
1: everywhere I go. And I have a lot to do to be accepting of the season that I'm in. Hmm. And I, because I'm in the dependent stance, have tried to accept the season that I'm in publicly before I've accepted it privately.
0: Hmm.
1: And I think it's going to take some rest for me to get there. And so um, back to the book for just a minute, want to say that they're all connected. You, you don't have to do them all, but everyone that you add is connected to another one in my experience of reading the book and thinking about it and all of that. And I don't think it's number specific, although there are little kernels throughout that are for a certain number and i'm so aware that the podcast is all of those kernels that we learn from other numbers put together and connected together you know from moving forward we're going to be saying remember when kendra said that or we'll be saying on the podcast kendra said such and such and it's because when we talk to one another about the big things then we end up pulling together all of these little kernels and somehow they all fit. It's just, do we sit and talk about the big things?
0: Hmm. One why it's called the Enneagram journey. Exactly. Enneagram is not the big thing. No. The journey is the big thing. Yeah. Hearing different numbers and different people who are the same number, but are different people share their experience is kind of like what you spoke to Kendra of, Trying to write the right book of like, this isn't a laminated sheet of paper of how to, how to do life. Yeah. It's, there are a lot of different, ha, find your spot, find your place on the journey and find your way to navigate it. Mm-hmm. And what you spoke to about, about your relationship with anger and the choices you make, it, it's basically, that's what we are about to do in, in five minutes, by the way, just so we can get a, a time thing. We've got a meeting about the upcoming uh, August event. What you spoke to, I think, is going to be a promotion for what the event is about. But you're talking about don't don't put yourself in the position to. We can make the choice to not be in the position, physically, spiritually, mentally, all the things, for fear, anger, and shame, and or we can be gluttons for the punishment, and you know, and go with it, and key and. Unload on the kids about about the Legos and not right. about the the thing.
1: The thing, right? Um, yeah, it's fascinating how quickly Legos—if you step on a Lego—brings up the thing.
2: Holy moly! I mean, <laughs> zero to sixty is something else. <laughs> it That's is why so it's a painful. good example. It, it is, is a
1: great worse. example. It's a great example.
0: And for dog people, it's a dog. We've got one dog. When you're doing dinner, that dog is laying in the center of the kitchen. <laughs> It's a small kitchen (laughs) in the center
1: and a big dog
0: almost picked her up the other day. And I almost bit the floor thing full of pasta. Like it was almost really, really bad. (laughs) And I didn't, I, (laughs) I did not go the healthy route (laughs) and the dog did catch the anger Sure. uh, instead of my frustrations around everything else. Anyway.
2: Well, there's always, that's why we love the gift of repair.
0: Yeah. then I thought about that also when you were talking, that there's not a, when people say, you know, it's never too late to say sorry. So last night, me and our son, we, I was getting frustrated. It wasn't the best deal. And he went and lay down in bed. After he'd been in bed about five minutes, I went in there and I was like, hey man, uh, we did not have a great night. I think we can both say that we didn't do it perfectly but I don't want us to undo all the great steps we've made to build this relationship that we're working on because of this night. So if you're good with it, then people will say, well, if I apologize, you know, it's too late to apologize. They're, they're not going to forgive me. It's not about their forgiveness. It's if you're dependent on the outcome of the result, right. then you're behind the eight ball anyway. Right.
1: Plus their response is none
2: of your business. It's true doing your work is your business. Yeah. That's Right. I can ask my kid for forgiveness and he can say no.
0: Yeah.
2: And it's like, you're allowed to feel that way, man. Yeah. like That's what it is. Yeah. I'm so grateful for repair. It's never, it's never wasted.
1: I'm very taken with the fact that the backdrop for our conversation that nobody can see actually (laughs) um, is an advertisement or are saying continually, you need these three things. You need a therapist and a spiritual director and centering prayer or a centering practice. Yeah. And that deep breath, if you you do a centering practice and you add the deep breath to your plan of how you're going to show up and do the right thing, it's all there. Your oneness is all there. It's how you get there that is so unique. Hmm. And that's what I think I, I want people to hear along with everything else you've said is your oneness is there. You have just done a combination of work that makes your approach to life a little different. And I think your podcast and your writing are a reflection of that work. And, if those of us who are privileged enough to have an opportunity to do the work uh have opportunities to share the fruit, then in my language, we're doing what's ours to do. And I don't know anybody who presents the world with a bigger, better fruit basket than you do. Mm.
2: That is very dear. And I receive that. Part of me is like, Soaking it in, and the part of me is like, careful, because, uh, and I know y'all have to go to a meeting. It is incredibly meaningful when someone whose work has impacted my life so, I mean, in really amazing, tangible ways. For you to value what I do is is really like it's it's it'll take me a minute. It'll take me a minute, but I. I, I will take that minute and I will receive it on the front end and it'll, it'll get all, it'll get all the way in eventually. Um, but yeah, it's just, thank you for that. It's incredibly validating. What if we put
1: together and Joel, you'll have to add yours. What if we put together? Okay. What matters? What is mine to do? <laughs> and
2: we need like the questions. Yeah. We need the questions.
0: I think for, for things that are just true there's only variations of the same thing mm-hmm. and or different reasons or um, motivations or what you're looking for from the same thing. So when Kendra's talking about the breathing, stopping and breathing ever since I read, uh, I read the book breathe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget his name. What a phenomenal oh, book.
1: Oh my <laughs> gosh. What a book.
0: And then I've been focusing on that. But one of the things that I've been doing lately in both the, and not a hundred percent of the time, but when I'm when I'm doing thing when I do do it is stopping and breathing and count and my thing is counting so it's not just breathe it's not a body scan necessarily it's not so for an example yesterday I had to go down to the main building to get the mail I know that she's there it's a, the door's locked for security reasons I know she's there I've rung the doorbell I wait and then at the point where I started getting angry
1: mm-hmm.
0: I've been Stop and, stop and count to 30. What's 30 seconds? Odds are she's going to come in that 30 seconds. What, whatever the thing is, 15, 20, 30 seconds, it's going to happen. But if I don't stop and count and actually recognize the time that's going, feels like an hour. Uh, I'm outraged. What are we doing here if we can't just answer the door?
2: This is like, super slow, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's, And it's just stopping and... Yeah. While counting, focusing, you know, five and a half in, five and a half out, it's, it's that. And that's what I say when people, someone came up and asked me about recovery and the Enneagram. I'm like, listen, if it doesn't work together, then one of them's not real. One of them's not true. If my um, outlook on and beliefs in Christianity don't work with spiritual practices, don't work with recovery, don't whatever then something is, isn't correct. Just plain and simple. Is my outlook on it.
1: Yes, I agree. A hundred percent.
0: thousand percent.
2: Yeah. This has been such a treat. Well, we didn't, thanks for inviting me on.
1: Oh, of course. I don't think we finished anything. So you'll hear from us. Oh, I'm thrilled. Like I said, (laughs) easiest yes ever. Okay, great. Anytime. anytime, anytime. And let me just say one more time. I, I, oh, I got one more question. I do have one more. (laughs) How did you come up with genius?
2: So my friend, uh, Emily P Freeman, who was an author. Yeah. 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 She is the one who named it for me. I was, she's a, she is an amazing namer of things. Yes. And when I was like, I just need to figure out like how to help people like not do this swing thing. And she came up with lazy genius. And I was like, yeah, it's like, you can be a genius about the things that matter and lazy about the things that don't. And we both cheered and high-fived and we're like, but yeah, there's no great story. Emily just came up with it. Okay,
1: wait a second, because I wrote down something that she wrote in the forward that I wanted to say. Mm. Uh, This is a quote from her, and this is how we can end this lovely time together. The reason the Lazy Genius Way has the potential to change how you live your life is not simply because of its practical tips, but because of the spirit in which they are offered. That's also true in my experience of the conversation with you and of being with you. And then I wrote, for twos, no shaming here. Well, can't wait till you
2: betcha. Can't wait till next time. Oh, same, same, same. I look forward to it. It's on the calendar, hypothetically. Okay, great. Blessings. All right.